0: Sorry to disappoint, but no, I am not Steph Curry, who will be bringing the sermon this morning. I am Tim, yeah, a middle-aged, bearded sports fan, so let's go. Good morning and welcome to Church of the Valley's worship service, where we are gathered together on Sunday morning to corporately lift up the name of Jesus, to be encouraged by God's word, and to give the opportunity for this community to be established around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to continue our series known as, in Jesus' name, amen, through the book of John. We named it that back in early 2018 because we wanted to study a book of the Bible that made it all about Jesus. And while all the books of the Bible, all the letters in the Bible are about Jesus or foreshadow him in some way, the book of John is blatant and unashamedly all about you believing in Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf. In fact, the book of John, towards the end of the letter, written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, named John, puts it this way. John 20, 30-31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This entire letter that we've been studying off and on since February of 2018 has been to point us to life and life eternal, to educate us and persuade us to see Jesus for who he really is, the Savior of mankind and the Lord over heaven and earth. Can somebody testify to that? Today we're going to see what it looks like to claim that you believe in God, but to not act like it, and what it means to believe in God no matter what. We see how important the truth really is and how our Savior not only was the truth, but spoke the truth in the hardest of circumstances. So meet with me, please, in John 18, verse 15. And as you turn there, let me tell you about a man who attempted to evade the truth from his wife. Once a drunk husband snuck up the stairs quietly in the home after an evening of binge drinking. He looked in the bathroom mirror and he bandaged the bumps and bruises he had received in a fight earlier that night. He then proceeded to climb into bed, smiling at the thought that he pulled the one over on his wife. When morning came, he opened his eyes, and there stood his wife. You were drunk last night, weren't you? No, honey, I wasn't. Well, if you weren't, then who put all the Band-Aids on the bathroom mirror? (laughs) And with that, let's engage in God's Word, where we left off last week, John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was no- people are now getting the joke, that's good. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Jesus being led to meet with the high priest after Jesus's arrest, has both Peter and another disciple of Jesus following close behind. Now here's where speculation sets in. Have you ever read the Bible and just assumed some things? In many, people will assume that who is being spoken about here is John. Because John had this habit of not referring to himself in his own gospel by name. But there is an assumption that this unnamed disciple of Jesus had some connection to Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, the current high priest, who was Annas' son-in-law. And this disciple was possibly might have been a relative or have some other connection, which the gospels are quiet on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell us exactly why this other follower of jesus got to go see the high priest but real quick disclaimer something i got out of this because we don't really know it's this if scripture is quiet on something and there are things that scripture is quiet on if scripture is quiet on something please do not obsess over it you don't have to more often than not we look for answers to questions that really don't have any influence on our spiritual well-being That doesn't mean we shouldn't question things or address our doubts, but often I see people be distracted by things that God never intended for us to make ultimate, and this can create what ends up happening is a conspiracy theorist in us biblically, which perpetrates the assumption that like the enemy's scheme in Genesis 3, that God is holding out on us in some way. Verse 16, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Now, Peter was just a fisherman, which points to the reality that these followers of Jesus weren't the most gifted or effective. They didn't have a pedigree that made them better than anyone else. In fact, based on Jewish tradition, most of the disciples, other than Judas, were not expected to be, to really amount to anything spiritually. But Judas was, but look at what point look at what point that Luke makes in the book of Acts. He says it this way in Acts 4:13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now I know how some people treat this contrast about Peter They might think, well, who needs to learn or grow in their understanding of Scripture? Why spend time in the Scriptures? Because all we really have to do is just spend time with Jesus. But the reality is that all of the apostles, all of the people who wrote the New Testament, had been with Jesus, had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They learned, and here's a crazy thing, they grew together. They grew through one another and through the study of the truth of God's Word. So they not only would be more informed, but as we've talked about lately, they'd be transformed through the reading and doing of the word. So we have Peter, who eventually gets invited to see the high priest. And look at what happens as he is questioned by the servant girl regarding his connection to Jesus who had just been arrested. Here's what happens. Verse 17, you aren't one of these, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked. Peter replied, I am not. Wow. So I know what you might be thinking. Peter, what? You just cut off a dude's ear attempting to stop a mob from taking Jesus, and now you're claiming that you don't know him? Seriously? What's your deal? Okay, I'm going to speak to us as Church of the Valley real quick. Um, Every single one of us does this too. You don't believe me? How often do we disown Jesus because we don't want to talk about him with our family or friends or maybe even strangers because we're afraid it'll get awkward? Or we'll offend them with the mention of Jesus, who we claim to love and follow and yet keep to ourselves because we think that uh, the conflict his name may bring up doesn't seem worth it. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be annoying. Like our car horn doesn't need to go, Jesus saves. Like that's, I'm sure <laughs> Tesla might create that, but for now it's just farts. Um, but, but the reality is that there are people in our sphere of influence that God has put there on purpose so that we can be a light to them. You might say, to kind of excuse Peter, you might say, or to excuse ourselves, well, Peter walked with Jesus. He didn't need faith to believe in him, yet he did. He needed a supernatural faith that he was yet to have. Not because he didn't have enough reason to believe, but unlike those of us who in this room today self-identify as Christians, who have truly bowed down to Jesus, he was yet to receive the Holy Spirit who would turn him and the other disciples from timid fans of Jesus to bold followers and proclaimers of the most important message that could ever be shared. And here it is. God stepped into our humanity, died in our place, and he rose from the dead. That is the most important message that we can share with someone. And yet a lot of us are afraid to do it. And Peter, in this context, is more worried about his way of life than his allegiance to Jesus. In America, we won't be martyred for our faith or put to death for claiming Jesus Christ as our Lord. But we may be embarrassed by other people not believing the same thing or feel excluded or looked down upon, and I got to admit that that persecution kind of seems worth it, don't you think? Oh, no, you defriended me. The reality is I don't always like sharing my faith, I can be real about that, I'm kind of the compelled guy, so I'm expected to share my faith. Hi, nice to meet you. Jesus? No, that's not what I do. COVID especially has made me more of an introvert. Anyone else? Yeah! All right, my people. Now, that doesn't mean that introverts are any less precious to God or effective in ministry. Most of my favorite people are introverted because they can have a one-on-one conversation like no one else can. But one thing I've enjoyed especially is being more introverted. You guys are going to be shocked by this. On my runs. See, when I go on a run, it's just me and the Lord, some music and a podcast. And I love pounding the pavement on a trail and getting lost in a book or music or a sermon. Now, I'm the weirdo. If I'm running, just so you guys know, um, and some of you have seen me running and I didn't notice you and I'm very sorry for that, Adam. Um, But... Generally, when I'm running, I wave at people that are running past me, okay? And so here's what happens. Half the people wave back to me, and the other half of the people are rude, selfish people who are probably liar, liar, pants on fire kind of people. (laughs) Hi. Okay. So two Saturdays ago, I was on my 20-mile run, which I'm sure is a sentence we all like to say. And about five miles in, there was a man around my age. He passed me, and I took a break to check my phone because Kyle had texted me. And then I began to run, and I caught up with him, and I asked how far he was going, and he didn't know, and then he asked how far I was going. And we ended up running about five miles together. I I ran a little slower because I wanted to be able to talk, and, and if I run fast, I can't talk. And I found out a bunch of things about him where he was from, where he worked how long he's been in the area, what his family's like, what his interest rate is on his mortgage. I mean, these are the things that come up when you run. (laughs) And at some point, he started to ask me questions back. Now, I have the sweet luxury, which 11 of us do on staff at the church, uh, where I work at a church, so it's a really great way to see if someone's interested in spiritual things because you go, hey, where do you work? And they're like, what do you think? Software engineer. I'm like, duh. And then they're like, where do you work? And I'm like, I'm a pastor, and they run away. No, that's not what happened. Um, I said I was a pastor at a church, and he started asking me questions about it, and we talked a little bit about it, and, and at some point he's like, so, so what does your church, church believe? And I was like, yes! <laughs> and I got to share the gospel with him, and then I took him down to the creek and baptized him. No, that didn't happen, but I did share the gospel. And, and he was like, okay, and he still ran three more miles with me. And he probably couldn't have outrun me, so he was stuck. And so we had a really good time, but I got to share with him. And he goes, man, I'd like to talk more about it. So you can pray for Jerry. He's a really nice guy. And I hope he's watching on livestream because I told him about it. But I want to encourage you that at some point in some of your relationships, there will be an obvious opportunity to talk about spiritual things. Don't be afraid of that because God has given you, your spirit, given you the Holy Spirit if you've committed to Jesus to help you with the words on what to share. And I have shared Christ in ways that I would not recommend, and God has still used it for the glory of his name. So listen, like the gospel, when you share your faith, it's not about you. Verse 18, it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible sometimes, I look at the narratives, and I'm like, why, why, why this? What, what's the point of this? Well, this isn't telling us much theologically. Is God warm? That's not what this is implying. This keeps the narrative going, and it hints at the probability that this is probably the evening because of the coldness in Jerusalem around Passover time. Because during the day, historically, at this time of year, it wasn't cold, and there was no need for a fire. All right, so that's what I got for that verse. Verse 19. (laughs) Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. (laughs) The high priest is questioning Jesus about the people that are following him, the people that claim that they know him, and they're questioning him about his teaching. Jesus makes known that nothing, we'll see this in a moment, that nothing that he has done has been in private. Nothing he has taught has been to create insurrection or behind the backs uh, backs of the authorities and the public as if to undermine the authority of the religious authorities in this culture. He was open about who he was and what he came to do. Verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus said. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Now, Jesus is a master communicator. I mean, he's God. And he not only knew how to explain something, but he often would do it in parables. We, and a lot of times, or we would understand a parable as an analogy. So that for some, it was obvious. And for some, it was difficult for the, the hearers to actually understand what he was communicating. But this was not to be secretive. This was to give those with what the Bible calls ears to hear an opportunity to comprehend, and for those who did not have the ears to hear, it was a grace so that they wouldn't understand and effectively harden their own hearts because they would be unwilling to obey. Jesus taught the Jews in the synagogues and temples, but Jesus also taught on the mountainsides and in homes. So, is Jesus mistaken or is he lying? No. No. The point is, he was making, was that the doctrine, the content of what he taught, never differed. He didn't give one message in the temple and then whispered a different message to his disciples. That's not what took place here. And being consistent with the teaching of the truth was something that Jesus embodied at all times. So something myself and some leaders in the community at Church of the Valley have noticed is that ever since COVID, there seems to be a disconnect between content, what we're trying to proclaim and explain, and experience, what you experience maybe when you come onto campus. I know earlier on in my ministry, even as I got to be part of a church plant, the focus, intentional or not, was more focused on the experience. It was more focused on what we can produce in a worship service, I had experienced personally worship services that seemed to have no life in them at all. They seemed to not really have any purpose. And I started to become judgmental towards what many other churches were doing. Great way to start a church, right? So we set out not to be better, but to be different. And we would meet on Wednesday evenings, and in some cases we'd meet on Sunday afternoons. And while the time being different than a Sunday morning was a little different. We attempted to create a worship experience that stripped away a lot of the things that you'd expect from a church service. We had time of talking together in service. We didn't usually stand on the platform. We moved the chairs around to create new ways to engage in the teaching and the musical worship experience. And while it was fun and exciting and new, there were a few things that I didn't really think about. Like, what happens when we're not just like 15 people in a room? How do you do it so it actually works to scale? How do we continue to do what we're doing so that everyone who wants to participate can participate and hear the message? What about the people who are yet to engage or are ready to be in conversations but still want to check out what's going on? What about the fact that we aren't all on the same page spiritually, and as a pastor, I'm called to shepherd people from different spiritual backgrounds and understandings of God? I could probably write a book on much of what I personally did wrong in this season. That'd be fun. I suck. No, that, would be, that wouldn't be a very good book. I could probably write a book on what's happened since. But I've never tried to convey that I was an expert in anything. What we were doing was, and I said this from the beginning, an experiment. We were trying to see things that might work and might not work and talk about an education in ministry. We learn so much more from when we fail than when we win. Am I right? And if that's true, I am so educated as a pastor. Yay! So when Church of the Valley, this church, this church that's been here since the late 50s was looking for a pastor, I, even though we were meeting in Sunnyvale at the time, my heart was in the city of Santa Clara. I went to Boxer Middle School. I went to Santa Clara High School. My kids go to uh, elementary school, and they've gone to the same schools I'm going to now. And my heart is here, and there was this spiritual marriage, there was this opportunity that in a human sense didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. Like the first time I preached here as a guest, I was like, hey, so all I know about this church is I've gotten two speeding tickets right on the other side of this wall. That's what I know about Church of the Valley. The speed limit's too uh, slow, is what I said. And when I got here, COV was full of tradition. In fact, I don't even know how often they were called COV. Church of the Valley was full of tradition. And the church plant that I helped start, only tradition, was that we were yet to have any traditions. And bringing these two communities together seemed like an awful idea to some people. They're not here. <laughs> but I loved it. I loved it, not because it was all easy and frappuccinos and rainbows, but... Because as we did it, and people didn't get along, there was an opportunity for people to think less about themselves and more about other people. I'd love to say that everyone got along, that there was no drama. There was so much drama. There were people fighting about inanimate objects in the church building. There was a person mad at me that I kept talking about the gospel. Sorry, guilty, but here's what we saw happening. People from all types of walks, all types of stages of life, all types of past faith, from different spiritual backgrounds were hearing the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ and life change was taking place. And some really didn't like it. They wanted to focus on things that they had always focused on because change was not something they were willing to entertain. And for some, they didn't like it because doing things the way that other churches had done things wasn't something they wanted to do either because they wanted to be on the cusp of the new and exciting way of doing things. One week, a mentor and friend of mine who will remain nameless, but Ruth's dad, came to a church service. And after the service, he said to me, Tim, COV today lifted up the name of Jesus, and when we lift up Jesus, God draws people to himself. And that comment at that time, if he knew it or not, was so prophetic. It was what was to come at COV, because the staff and the elders and the teaching team, we all care that the people who participate at Church of the Valley, we care that these people grow. We care that you grow. We care that you know Jesus, We care that people engage with one another, but what I noticed was that experience for some, without even realizing it, took precedence over the content of the message, and when the experience is the goal, how it makes us feel becomes the marker of what we do here more than lifting up the name of Jesus. And I'm not exactly sure when. I'd like to say that the content of the gospel was always of first importance, but if that's true or not... Many focus more on the experience than the content. And I just want you to know that COV, if you've been coming here for a few weeks, your first Sunday a few weeks, a few years, or 69 years, like our dear sister Barbara, I want you to know that we are going to preach the gospel no matter what, all the time. If we're in John, we're preaching the gospel. If we're in Ezekiel, we're preaching the gospel. If we're in a community group, the gospel's being proclaimed. If we're in children's ministry right now, real quick, your kids are hearing about Jesus. Amen. And we never, ever, ever want to veer from what Paul told the church in Corinth, which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So church, we're glad you're here. I hope you want to know Jesus But if you're yet to make that commitment, if you're still kicking the tires, I'd encourage you to keep coming because we're going to keep inviting you to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. We hope you're here and you're committed to Jesus, but if you're yet to do that, we're just going to keep telling you, hey, here is where life and life eternal is, and we want to see you know and grow in him. We want you to take what you hear on a Sunday and tell somebody. We want you to have accountability and put into practice what you've learned. We want you to have community with one another in some way. Well, one thing as one of the elders and I, Daniel and I, were meeting this week, we realized was one connection to the church is unhealthy. So if I'm the only person you know in this church, stop it. Get to know somebody. If you've only got one friend in this church, there are some really extroverted people. You can make a lot of friends real quick. Don't have just one connection to the church. It's not healthy. It's not good. It puts false expectations on people that they should never have had. That was free. That was not in my notes. The reality is that we grow significantly more together in community than we do apart on our own. And lastly, if you're part of COV, we hope that you will help us show Jesus, not just in your actions or by being a good citizen. That's expected. Be a good citizen. The Holy Spirit isn't required for you to help someone across the street, but what we want to do is we want to show Jesus off by actually sharing him with those around us. That's why we did a trunk or treat yesterday. Okay, how was the trunk or treat yesterday? It was so good. It was so fun. And for everybody that served, God bless you and thank you. For everyone who just came, maybe brought your kids or just want to come see what it was like, thank you. For those of you that couldn't be there, there's another one in 364 days, so let's go. (laughs) we want to keep inviting you and encourage you to be a part of what God's doing here. There are things happening. In a few weeks, we're going to go and meet our neighbors and we're going to invite them to church on Sunday. We're going to invite them to Christmas Eve and we're going to do this because not just for the people that need to be invited because we preach the gospel, but we're going to do this for us because a lot of us need to step out of our comfort zone and actually tell somebody, hey, there's a great church that we'd love for you to come and check out because Jesus is preached here. Eventually, I was going to get back to my sermon. This church values evangelism. Not to grow our church, but to grow the kingdom of God. And here's the crazy method behind all the madness. When we serve, when we give of our time or our offering or, uh, or just uh, we send a text to someone to say we care, when we share Christ with someone. When we do any of those things, you know what happens if we do them for the right reasons? We grow. We grow in obedience. We grow for independence on the Lord. We grow in love for our Lord. We grow in Christ's likeness. And what is better than that? And Jesus, while speaking to the high priest, made known that the content of the message was never Hidden. It was never watered down because the content of the gospel and the rescue plan of God is something, if we believe it to be true, that we cannot and will not keep to ourselves. And Jesus, even being threatened with execution, would not back down because the content of the message that he possessed and the sacrifice that he would offer was far too great to allow temporal things to obstruct the power of the gospel. Woo! That's good. Verse 21. 21 why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So again, I wish my superhero or my superpower was tone in the Bible. I don't know how he said this. I don't know if Jesus had a squeaky voice. I have no idea. But this could almost be heard as defensive. Why are you questioning me? But instead, Jesus, who was the law keeper and the fulfiller, knew that the proper procedure was not first to question the defendant but the witnesses that accused Jesus of anything and also interrogate the witnesses who heard Jesus say what he said. Jesus was essentially lawyering the high priest based on the law that Annas justified himself by and then look what happens to Jesus. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest he demanded? Anyone else ball up their fist when they read this? Just me? Oh, me and Mike. Okay, we're holy. (laughs) Uh, See, my first reaction is, how dare you strike my Lord? That's my dad voice, in case anyone's wondering. And yet, isn't that essentially where the official was coming from? How dare this Nazarene speak the way he is to the high priest? Show some respect, is what he's thinking. And so his reaction in the flesh was to strike Jesus in the face, and I'm sure he justified, he felt justified because he didn't believe the high priest, who was the spiritual authority, was getting the respect he is due because the high priest serves the God Most High. Anyone else see the irony in this as this guy slapped God with skin in the face? But what I want us to see is that Jesus, before he was slapped, used the rules that the high priest justified himself by to show him that even the rules that he kept more dear than God himself was not something that the high priest could even keep. One of my favorite things about the gospel narrative, favorite's probably the wrong word, but one of the things that I notice that comes up often and points me to truth. So the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels written by these men who either were apostles or walked with apostles and wrote down what they said, is that the narrative of Jesus' earthly ministry had a lot of opposition from people who claimed to love God and God's justification, but instead chose to justify themselves rather than receive God's gift of grace. Isn't it ironic? Alanis Morissette. See church, I need grace. No, like really. Like I need grace all the time. It'd be super awkward if someone's name is Grace in here right now. Like I need grace more than I think any of you understand. Not just because I'm awful and sinful, which real quick, if you were hoping you were coming to a church where a pastor doesn't fail, go somewhere else but because the gospel teaches me that there is nothing I can do to earn God's favor no matter how good I attempt to be or how hard I attempt to try because grace is a gift that is freely given and the only difference between me and this official that slapped Jesus in the face the high priest the Pharisees of the day the religious the only difference is that I by grace alone acknowledge that I need grace all the time But for those of us who justify themselves or attempt to earn their salvation and right standing before God, it's like attempting to push a semi truck up a hill with only your legs to support it. Some of you dudes are strong, but you can't do that. It cannot happen. And Paul addresses those who attempt to justify themselves by their ability to keep the law in Galatians 5. Here's what it says Verse 4 You who are trying to be justified, made right by the law, You have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Church, can we stop alienating ourselves from Christ and stiff-arming grace? We have two examples here as we read this narrative. We have Jesus who denies nothing, and we have Peter who denies everything. Guess who we're more like more often than not? And guess who Jesus willingly is doing what he is doing for truly benefits? Us. Those who receive his grace, and this passage I believe was written and happened in the order that it did so that we could, even though we deny God on the daily, let's be real, Christ doesn't, and we're with him. I'm unable to do anything righteous on my own, but God, who is rich in mercy, gives me his grade, He gives me his resume. He gives me his sacrifice. I did nothing right, and I get what I didn't deserve. That is the crux of the gospel, and my hope is that we see how deficient we are in our own strength and how sufficient Jesus Christ is in our place. That's a great way of understanding how important the gospel is. We're not good enough, but Jesus is, and I'm with him. Verse 23. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus uses the truth of his words to show the hypocrisy of the judgment of this official to strike him. I deduct from this example, and this is going to hurt, church. I didn't like this. I didn't like learning this. That maturity and godliness are demonstrated in taking a punch. Boo! I don't like my own pun- I don't like my own point. My natural self knows how to throw a punch. My natural self knows how to defend himself. He knows how to not only be defensive, but unfortunately offensive. Yet Jesus takes this punch and doesn't react in anger, but he reacts in truth. If what I said isn't true, then show me where I'm wrong and show me where you are justified. Now hear me, you might hear, well, maturity means you can take a punch Listen, Christianity is not one of passivity at all. Even to take a punch requires self-control. And guess what? Self-control is not natural. It's supernatural. Biblical self-control is a work and a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And ironically, it doesn't just happen without opportunities to exercise self-control. Lord, I pray for self-control. And then you get given a ton of ways to have to exercise it, just so you know. And just because you've exercised self-control once doesn't mean it's automatic. There's multiple opportunities for this to actually exercise self-control. I am a witness of this because it is a constant issue for me. But God will, throughout our spiritual walk, give us heavenly sandpaper. Does anyone know what this means, heavenly sandpaper? EGRs? What's EGR stand for? Let's go. Extra grace required. Yep. God will give us heavenly sandpaper and EGRs, extra grace required, type of people able to grow us in the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, turn to your neighbor, and if they're difficult, thank them. No, don't, don't, don't. But God will give us people to help us grow in the fruit of the Spirit from love to patience to self-control to kindness and a few others. If you don't know what heavenly sandpaper is, it probably means that it's you. (laughs) But you are a tool of the Lord, so praise God. And He'll give us people and circumstances that seem unjustified, that seem unfair. Hey, God's not fair. Let me let that sit for a second. If he were fair, we'd all get hell. But Jesus took the crux of the punishment for our sin. Our God is just, but I don't think he's fair. Oh, I'm going to get an email about that one. He'll give us people and circumstances that aren't fail, and yet the truth of his word says this. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him but don't miss the comma, who have been called according to his purpose. Don't read this through a prosperity lens. This doesn't mean if you love him, everything works out great, and nothing seems unfair or difficult. Read that last part of the verse again. Those who have been called according to his purpose. Often we think that if something is difficult, then it's not of God. Stop thinking that. Let me tell you again, the Lord never sanctifies with pillows. Never. Called according to his purpose means more about what God is doing in you than what he's doing for you. But also, many people think they are following God because they're being a good person. Jesus didn't live, die, and rise again so you'd be a better person, church. That was not the goal. He did it so you'd have the opportunity to be forgiven by faith, reaching out to his grace. That is why. And our Christian walk, while led, by the Spirit, requires our effort to go hand in hand with God's leading. Otherwise, we don't grow. We don't learn. We're not transformed. Instead of being like Jesus, we're more like Peter who denies Christ. And guess what, next week, spoiler, he's gonna do it two more times. Or the official who slaps Jesus in the face because we are offended by the fact that Jesus calls us and equips us to a life that looks different than other people. We as a church focus on the content of the truth We don't get our teaching from cable news. We get it from the Bible, but not just the Bible. I've known a lot of people are like, well, in in and out on the bottom of the cup, it says, no, 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 no. We read from the Bible with the author and recipient and context in mind, with Jesus as the lens and the Holy Spirit as our guide, and we help one another work through what this says. Those of us who teach on Sundays and in Bible studies still have this huge responsibility to interpret the passages that we bring before the congregation within orthodoxy, okay? Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear orthodoxy, but this essentially means that we do not want to veer too far from what has been consistently known theologically about God for thousands of years. God's creation of the world and man, sin entering into the world through Adam, the flood The Israelites, Moses, Abraham, David, John the Baptist, all of this is part of a narrative that points to or foreshadows the coming of our Savior in the, here's a big word, in the incarnation of Christ. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. Ho, 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 uh uh-uh. The incarnation of Christ. His perfect life lived His earthly ministry full of teachings about the kingdom of God here on earth and the miracles he performed all point towards the reality that he who was without sin would be made sin so that the creation of man and woman could be made right before God, all found in what we call the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also believe Jesus' sacrificial death, his physical resurrection, were the culmination of his finished work here on earth. His appearances to disciples would be ma- who would eventually be made apostles, his commissioning of the apostles, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father in heaven, his sending of his Spirit all point to the dependence that we as post resurrected followers of Jesus now have on the Holy Spirit, who came to be our comforter and to lead us in the truth of the gospel to help us think biblically and to grow us in the fruit of the Spirit as we love God, and through that love of God, we love others. The actions of the apostles point us to how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, built his church on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. The epistles, they're the letters to the church, 1 uh, uh, Timothy or Titus and Romans and Galatia, there are a lot of different letters to a people in a church or persons of a church are written so that the early church could be corrected by the apostles for how they were acting and were perhaps off theologically. In fact, there are many letters written to the churches in the first century that found their way into the Bible written by the Holy Spirit through apostles because they, like us, would misinterpret what was written in the book and would act the fool and would not make the main thing the main thing. We have the letter known as Revelation. There is no S at the end. If you want to annoy me, call it Revelations, but it's Revelation, which concludes the book and the narrative of God's reign over sin through the sacrifice and resurrection of the Son. While it hasn't happened yet, it paints this vivid and beautiful picture of where we are headed. Now, did I leave anything out? Yeah. There are things like the virgin birth and church governance and prophecy that I didn't touch in my rant. But as we teach the Word of God book by book, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, verse by verse, we don't get to hide from the subject matter that Scripture points out, which was written, as Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. And we hold our doctrine. We hold our view of Scripture because it points to Jesus in the highest regard, because unlike culture and our feelings, Scripture is not fickle or always changing. Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Okay, Annas had been the high priest and was even still called the high priest, but it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who had now been given the title of high priest by the ruling Roman authorities. While Annas no longer was considered the responsible high priest, like a former president, he held on to the title as a respectful honor, and his connection to the current high priest, who was a relative, made him more involved than any other high priest would generally be. A short excerpt from a fictional book pointed out the irony about us and truth and the devil. Once the devil was walking alongside with one of his demons, they saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. What did he find, asked the demon. A piece of the truth, the devil replied. Doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth, asked the demon? No, said the devil. I'll see to it that he makes a religion out of it. Church, looking at the full counsel of scripture, at not only the themes of the Bible, but the entire narrative of the Bible, reading the passages, not to find something that just makes us feel better in the moment, but to draw us to worship to an eternal God who spoke life into existence while giving us his very word to know him more fully, we can't take this for granted. At least we shouldn't. We can't pick and choose which truth we like. We need to be willing to allow the word of God to read us and to show us where we need to repent. And as I've grown older and as I've matured and as I've read the Bible, I've realized how often when I read this, I realize that I need to repent every time I read any of it. As I've grown, as I have taken punches from those who claim the same Christ that I do, I've expect, I have personally been expected to take the higher road because of my responsibility as a pastor. I've noticed that I cannot open the word without seeing where I am deficient. And for some people, that's something they're too afraid to see. Or they have such a low view of themselves that any talk of them being deficient makes them depressed. But here is what I know I have a God who extends grace to those who receive it. And it's not earned, it's not worked for, it is gifted and received by faith. And I cannot tell you the difference it has made for some of us to stop attempting to lift ourselves up, but to bow down and lift Jesus up as our justification, as our holiness, as our righteousness, as our salvation, and know that because of him alone, because of Jesus that we sang as we sang tremble, Jesus, Jesus, I'm not going to try to sing it to you. You know, my biggest fear as a pastor is that my mic's on during worship. I I have much faith in my friend Keith. But that through grace alone, by faith alone, we are made new creations who do not need to earn but can absolutely grow through being available to be matured through the will of God and the work of God through, guess what, difficult circumstances and people. But I only know that because I dig into this word with many of you. Because I read it not to be informed, but with the hope and expectation that by exercising the truths of Scripture in my life, I can be transformed. So church, we're going to respond right now. Worship team, I'm going to invite you to come on up. And there's going to be a time of singing. And for some of us, we call this time of singing worship. But let me remind you, worship is not relegated to songs with Christian themes. Worship is an act of living. So we can worship even when we aren't singing. Did you know that? We can worship through obedience. We can worship through the reading and applying of God's word. We worship by extending grace to others who do not deserve it. We worship through our giving of our offering. We worship through serving and giving of our time to someone other than ourselves. Worship to God comes in many forms. And I know that because of what he says in his word. So before we sing... Would you take a moment? Would you just get in your posture of comfort? Would you take a moment to take a breath? Because we're going to sing, but I would really love for our hearts to be prepared for this. Would you be still? And Would you use this opportunity maybe as we sing, maybe this moment right now, would you meditate on the truths of God's word? Would you meditate on what we just talked about in this passage. And, and for some, or as we have this opportunity of worship and singing, would you sing at the top of your lungs with your hands raised high if you so feel led, but don't feel like you're any more spiritual because you do that and others don't? Let's not take for granted what a privilege it is to gather corporately, to come together, to lift up the name of Jesus with the expectation that God will draw people to himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's so consistent. I thank you that it doesn't contradict itself, but Lord, I know for a fact it contradicts me. And so Lord, as it does, I pray for each of us as we read your word, would we not just check a box, but would we read it with the expectation that we want to know you better, God? When my wife used to write me notes, Lord, I didn't just read them once, I, I exegeted them. I read them over and over. And God, I want us to be the same way with your word. So God, as we get this opportunity to respond in singing and in a few moments takeaways and even offering as we leave this place and as we walk and live in the world that God, you've placed us in to be a light for you, Lord, would all of that be an act of worship for the glory of your name? But God, would you prepare us in this time as we sing? We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.